first reading today comes from the prophet Habakkuk. He asks God some hard questions as the Babylonians are bearing down on the city of Jerusalem. Why are you letting this terrible stuff happen to us? God responds to Habakkuk, Have patience. I will fulfill my promise. We can argue that our other readings today address a much more common occurrence in our life of faith when we ask questions of God, but we can't immediately determine how or even if God responds. Jesus calls us to a more mature relationship with God, a relationship built on faith and trust. The apostles asked Jesus to increase their faith. Why did they ask this? Well, in the verses just before today's gospel passage, Jesus told the disciples that if someone wronged them seven times in one day, and that person asked for forgiveness seven times, they were supposed to forgive the transgressor seven times. No wonder the apostles asked Jesus to increase their faith. In our gospel passage today, Jesus uses two different analogies to speak about faith. The first analogy speaks of seeds and trees. The second speaks of masters and servants. But what does it mean to have faith the size of a mustard seed sufficient to uproot a mulberry tree? Well, since moving to Knoxville, I've come to appreciate some of Jesus' vegetative analogies in new ways. Fifteen years ago, the Paulist fathers had such a beautiful garden here in North Knoxville that our neighbors used to wander through the backyard to admire it. But since then, the garden has fallen upon hard times. The garden probably reached its nadir when a large tree came crashing down in one of the hailstorms that we had in the spring of 2011. In the past year, I've been working to restore the garden. By far, the largest tree in the garden is the mulberry tree. It's humongous providing shade for a huge swath of our yard. When Jesus says that faith the size of a mustard seed could uproot such a tree, I shake my head in awe. But what about that master and servant analogy? I'll get to that, but please allow me to digress a bit first. I used to volunteer with Ta Beta Pi, the National Engineering Honor Society, in a program called Engineering Futures. On the weekends, I would travel around the country to college campuses. I led seminars on the so-called soft skills that engineering students needed to succeed in the workplace. How to run a meeting, how to charter a team, how to think creatively, and how to solve interpersonal problems. One thing that we talked about was how to motivate people. When you want to motivate somebody to do something, All you can do is explain to that person what the consequences of their actions will be. And there are two kinds of consequences, natural consequences and imposed consequences. When we need to motivate people, we're most likely to think of the imposed consequences first. Think about if you've ever had to motivate a child to clean his or her room. If you don't clean your room, you don't get to have dessert. If you don't clean your room, You're grounded. But if we can think of natural consequences for why we want somebody to do something, we'll probably do a better job in motivating them. 
If you clean your room, you'll have more space to play with your friends. If you clean your room, it will be easier to find clean clothes to wear every morning. We can try to apply this analogy to our gospel passage. If God is the master and we are God's servants, why do we do what the master asks of us? Is it because we fear that we'll be punished if we don't do as we're told? Or do we do what God asks of us because we know that it's necessary for our salvation? In other words, are we motivated by imposed consequences or by natural consequences? As we grow in relationship with God, I hope we can move away from being primarily motivated by the threat of hellfire towards being motivated by the good things that await the people who carry out God's will. But like most analogies, this one falls flat. I hope to reach a point in my relationship with God wherein I'm never motivated by threats or benefits. I dream of being solely motivated to do God's will because of my love for Jesus Christ. My motivation shouldn't be judged based on God's judgment. It should be based on God's love for me. Such a relationship requires me to trust in God, whether or not I understand why God is asking me to do certain things. Who are the people most likely to trust in God unconditionally? In my experience, those people who trust the most are people in hospitals. When we initially face major illnesses, we usually rack our brains, deluding ourselves into thinking that if we could understand why we are sick, we could figure it out if we just thought hard enough about it. But hopefully, we reach a point where we eventually realize that human illness is beyond our understanding. We must simply trust that God will care for us, protect us, and lead us through the valley of darkness. But it's not just about facing illnesses. The more we trust God, the more God will ask of us. Just read the lives of the saints for proof of this. I'd love to stay as an associate pastor forever. It's the best job in the world. I minister to people all day long. I don't worry about finances or personnel or administration. But I realize that someday my religious community and the people we serve will probably need me to take on a harder, less glamorous job. So naturally, there's a part of me that doesn't want God to push me out of my comfort zone. When the time comes, I hope that I'll be able to pray this prayer by Charles de Foucault. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I am ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart. For I love you, Lord, and so need to give myself, to surrender myself into your hands, without reserve and with boundless confidence, for you are my Father. It's a beautiful prayer, 
but it's also kind of scary. When the time comes, will I have sufficiently grown in my relationship with God to trust God completely? Will I have faith sufficient to uproot a mulberry tree? Maybe uprooting a mulberry tree isn't as daunting a task as it sounds. You see, until two and a half years ago, there were two large trees in our backyard, and they were both mulberry trees. When the hailstorm uprooted one of our mulberry trees, it completely transformed the landscape in our backyard. Today, as I admire the garden from my bedroom window, I realize that if that mulberry tree hadn't fallen, there probably wouldn't be as much life in our backyard. The sunlit open spaces, the colorful blooms, the flitting birds and butterflies. The mulberry tree has proven to me, once again, that after every death, there is a resurrection.